Today on EdgeFX. In the 1960s, as we're racing to the moon, and the goal is to beat the Russians, money is flowing into NASA, and all these criticisms from these grassroots movements, whether they're feminists or environmentalists or civil rights activists or anti-war activists, can be ignored. NASA does not have to deal with them in the 60s. But once the world knew we were going to beat the Russians, the popular support for NASA plummeted. And it's at that moment that NASA has to figure out a way to maintain or rebuild that public support. Historian of science, Lisa Ruth Rand, speaks with historian Neil Marr about his new book, Apollo in the Age of Aquarius. They discuss the political, cultural, and environmental currents that shaped the history of NASA and the significance of the space program in the social movements of the 1960s. Why don't we start with a quick overview of this book and sure. what made it motivated you to write it? Sure. The, the short story is that in graduate school, when I was working on my first book on the Great Depression and Franklin Roosevelt and conservation, I was in a pickup basketball game, and one of my colleagues who was also in the history program, a great legal historian, said in the middle of a game, you should write about NASA. They're doing really cool environmental stuff. And I sort of laughed it off but then kept an eye out and kept seeing stories in the New York Times or whatever about NASA doing really cool environmental science. So I just kept thinking about it, and then when the time came for our next project, I looked at it more you know, in depth. The reality, though, is that the book really began as a very different book. It began as an environmental history of the space race. I identified what I thought were five or six sort of thematic buckets that I thought might appeal to environmental historians, and then I realized that there were some problems with that approach. I realized that I really didn't want to write so much an environmental history of the space race, but more of a history of the 1960s that had an environmental history component to it, as well as a history of technology and a political history component to it. If you could give us just a taste of, yeah. of, of, of what those problems were, sure. because you are a well-known environmental historian and mm -hmm. moving into space history. Thank you it's, for that. <laughs> you are. So, so, I mean, moving from the like, yeah. Conservation Corps to NASA. Right. So the more I looked into this history and the more I, I sort of initially was focusing on these sort of five themes that I thought would appeal directly to environmental historians, um, just to give you some examples, you know, one of them was obviously environmental science and NASA's role in, in promoting environmental science during the 1960s and 1970s. Um, one was also the environmental politics involved in, in, in images like the whole Earth image and how NASA was supplying environmental icons for that movement. So there was an environmental politics theme or chapter I was going to do. There was an environmental science chapter. There was going to be a chapter on bodies because Richard White initiated us on this investigation of human bodies. And then there was going to be a whole chapter on spaceships designed by ecologists because there were ecologists who were designing spaceships like enclosed ecosystems. So there were all these really fascinating, weird topics that come out of NASA that would very much appeal to environmental historians. But as I continued doing the work and even began some of the writing, I realized that a book like that would really um, fall into, I wouldn't call it a trap, but I think it's a bit of a problem within the field of environmental history, and that's that we have tended in the past, it's changing now, but we've tended to write books about very obvious connections to nature, and we, we don't write books about larger, broader history writ large in general. We write a lot of books about parks and pollution and environmental legislation, but not enough books about the Civil War or the women's movement or the Great Depression. So I thought, how can I push this book? And I think of it as a pushing. How do I push this book 
not to do away with those environmental connections to environmental history, but how do I push it to engage more mainstream history writ large? So I ended up going back to a, a whole different set of archives and looked for ways to connect those environmental histories to the political history of this period, because what I found in my research was that actually the political history kept inserting itself in my, my research. I kept seeing the women's movement, or I kept seeing civil rights, or the anti-Vietnam War movement. So I thought, how can I bring those in? And it just entailed doing a, a whole set of research, going to the Southern Christian Leadership uh, Archives, and looking for their vision of what Apollo was about. It turns out they weren't too pleased with it at all. And going to the records of the Students for Democratic Society and see how they felt about NASA and its role in Vietnam. And, and, oh, and even going to NOW records up at, up at Radcliffe and, and seeing how NOW was quite against um, NASA in the beginning. And then I realized I could bring those movements in. So it made it a very different book, a much broader book, a book I think in a way, in a way it's an environmental and technological and political history of the 1960s really, mm -hmm. much more than that environmental history of the space race which was the original intention of the book. When, I, when you first told me about this project many years yeah. ago, I thought perhaps you were going to be looking at the space environment itself and what could be considered an environment. The idea of the environment, we often think of it as stopping with the Earth or perhaps the Earth's atmosphere. And it, what you're suggesting is it actually goes quite on quite into space. And it's interesting because when I was a graduate student thinking about this project, um, one of my advisors was Tom Bender. And he, he actually said that. He's like, remember, you know, the environment doesn't just stop with the upper atmosphere. It continues really? on into space. And that's Tom <laughs> Bender, right? It's like he's not a... He's not a historian of technology. He's not an environmental historian, right? But it was a, an incredibly, you know, smart thing to say. I do think of the environment that way. You know, I, I talk about bodies in space and spacesuits and environmental simulators um, and trying to connect that space environment with the environment back on Earth. The whole book is really about trying to connect space and the technology that allows us to explore space with nature back on Earth. Absolutely. Much, I, think it, it, that, I think that this book does a great job of... of of moving in two different directions right. that environmental historians may not have paid as much attention to in the past, right. both in terms of bringing these mainstream concerns into our purview, but also in looking beyond the atmosphere right. for, for other ways that, that the space environment right. and the earth environment interact. So let's, uh, let's maybe move into the meat and potatoes of the, of this uh, book. I, I really uh, appreciate a book that, especially a space history book that is thematically organized rather than chronologically organized. Mm -hmm. And I think that was obviously necessary for this text because you were looking at this very specific moment in the Cold War of uh, grassroots political movements, but also mm -hmm. the, the heyday of American and Soviet space programs. Mm -hmm. The first um, substantive chapter that you have looks at the civil rights movement of the 60s, the mutual influence between the civil rights movement and Apollo. Mm -hmm. And you open with this amazing... It's a great story. Why don't you tell the story? So uh, <laughs> the day before the Apollo 11 launch... Ralph Abernathy and 25 poor African-American families march to Cape Canaveral with four mules and two old wagons, and they demand a meeting with Thomas Paine, who's the administer, head, head administrator of NASA at the time. And they meet early in the morning in a field outside the gates of the Kennedy Space Center. Abernathy and his crew are at one end of the field, and Thomas Paine and other NASA administrators dressed in their thin black ties and their white shirts and their thick-rimmed glasses are at the other end of the field. And in the middle of the field is a giant group of reporters and uh, television crew cameras. And 
And Abernathy begins by walking hand in hand with his families to the middle of the field singing, We Shall Overcome. And Payne then goes to join them in the middle of the field. And it's an incredible moment because in the background uh, is the Apollo 11 rocket, the Saturn V rocket. And you can see it over their shoulders. This is what the images show in the coverage and also the news media reported. So um, Abernathy gets the microphone first and he says, look, I'm not here. We're not here to protest the launch tomorrow. We, we think it's wonderful. We were proud that it's happening. We're here to protest. And he says, he quotes it as, we're here to protest the distorted sense of national priorities. Um, and what he means is that all this money is going to explore outer space and none of the money is going to help people like these poor families who are with me here, many of whom reside in, in inner cities and in ghettos that have you know unhealthy living environments and poor drinking water and that sort of thing. And then Payne takes the microphone next and the reporters said that he was incredibly moved. He, he really was truly you know visually upset and, and, and empathetic. Um, and he said, if I could, he says to Payne and his, the families, if I could not push that button tomorrow and stop the launch, I would if, I, if we knew all that money would then go to solving all your problems back home. And he said, but those problems are way more difficult than sending a man to the moon. And we're not sure that's going to happen if we stop that launch. Then he says, so why don't you join us? Why don't you, he says, why don't you hitch your wagons to our rocket? And perhaps that might convince people in America to, to later on solve some of your problems. Then he, just to make sure, he gives them VIP passes to the Apollo launch the next day. Um, and to me, it was just an incredible moment because, you know, I think it, it illustrates this tension between the whole country coming together at a moment and feeling very positive about beating the Russians to the moon. And we think of that summer of 1969 as a moment of sort of national unity. But yet we had people like Ralph Abernathy protesting at Apollo 11. We also had people three weeks later, half a million young people flocking to upstate New York, to Woodstock, to basically have a very, very different sort of celebration, a celebration that really did not promote unity and did not really suggest that what the nation was doing was positive. It was more about an alternative vision for the nation. So we, we forget that the summer of 1969 was the summer of Apollo, but also the summer of Woodstock and civil rights activism. And uh, it's just that tension, I think, is at the heart of this era, the 1960s. You know, we have people coming together to celebrate moments like Apollo and people being torn apart because of... Uh, a debate over how those resources should be used for space or for Earth. What you just said, we said we forget X, Y, and Z. What's interesting about that and what, what, this, what this whole book as a whole really does is remind that claiming that America as a whole reacted a certain way right. to an iconic moment erases the experiences of many, many different American citizens, many different kinds of people around the world who are experiencing this very, very differently. Absolutely. And in that sense, I see this book as being, um, especially this chapter, as being in line with you know, Margaret Shetterly's book, Hidden Figures, which is now an um, Oscar-nominated movie. Yep. That's another point that this book does really well, particularly yeah. this chapter, is bring the black experience back mm -hmm. into this American right. space history, which yeah. in the end was, it was incredibly important to, to the moon effort and one that's been largely forgotten. Yeah. I mean, I think that not only are people experiencing the space race and Apollo in a variety of ways, right, but the politics behind that are also quite diverse. I mean, you have grassroots politics. We have people like Abernathy and civil rights activists or anti-war activists or environmentalists or feminists or even the hippies who are expressing their politics in one way. And then you have 
um, you know, national political leaders expressing it in quite another way. And I think the same thing could be said for even the people within NASA. I mean, we talk about you know, America, and we often say America did this, America did that. Well, people do the same with NASA. And we have to remember that within NASA, there was a wide variety of, of, of people and, and different groups. You had the scientists from NASA, you had astronauts, you had administrators. Um, so you can't speak of one NASA. There's, a, there's many different NASAs. Um, so there were a lot of moving parts in the book, and I think that I tried to, you know, give voice to as many of those moving parts as I could. This moment that you open this chapter with is so fascinating, and you mentioned uh, Payne's sympathy mm-hmm. that it was that it was that that reporter remarked that it was visible in his face, and I think this is relevant to our to our current yeah. moment. How did that even happen? How does a, a, a marginalized yeah. community that is developing a grassroots political movement? get the attention of a high-level federal employee moments before one of the defining moments of American history. One way it happens is you take the same four mules and two wagons that were brought to Washington, D.C. for the March on Washington uh, soon after Martin Luther King was assassinated, and you march them down to Cape Canaveral. So that was drawing media attention even before they got there. Um, So that's that's one way of of forcing it. but I, you know, I also think that Abernathy was an incredibly savvy strategist. When he is given VIP passes to the launch, they're waiting for five, six hours for the launch, and he's surrounded by diplomats, by politicians, and by a lot of news media. And he uses the time to basically give a lecture to the crowd about why this was a great moment, but that also much of this money could be turned around and spent towards problems of, of civil rights. And what NASA does, NASA is a very nimble organization because it was a civilian agency. NASA is able to shift gears and react to the, such criticism. So what NASA does is it takes, eventually in the 70s, it takes some of its resources and creates what it calls an urban systems project office. And it begins to retool some of its technology to try to solve some of these problems in the urban ghetto. It's, in a sense, what Abernathy was calling for. So for just one example is NASA takes some of the technology, the heating and cooling technology that was developed for its space capsules, developed by engineers, but also developed by ecologists, including the Odom brothers, who were hired by NASA to study bio-regenerative systems for space capsules. In other words, could you grow food that would help regulate the air in a space capsule and also feed the astronauts? Um, So these capsules were designed by engineers and ecologists. NASA tries to spin off some of that very highly efficient heating and cooling technology and implement it in low-income housing projects in places very close to Newark, New Jersey, which is where one of the worst riots occurs during the civil rights era. So NASA's trying to address these issues. In the case of the civil rights movement, it does so in a very superficial way. Uh, there are not many of, not much of this technology actually has an impact on people of color and their lives. Um, but NASA was at least attempting it. In, in, the, in the civil rights case, it was more a performative act than it was um, material act. Um, in other chapters with other movements, the, the influence NASA has on these movements and NASA's reaction to their critiques was much more substantial. Let, let me let me go to what you just said about performative rather than sure. material, because most of the different communities, you know, with the exception of say the second wave feminists, money, right? The money is the problem. Why are we spending so much money to spend send astronauts into space into the mm-hmm. moon when we have so many problems here on Earth? Whether the problem is inadequate housing environmental injustice in black communities, um, 
environmental degradation, warfare. Why, why spend this money on something that is not actually helping people on the right. earth? Throughout you, there's the material refrain. But then this performative aspect, the idea of the spin-off, yep. which you introduce in this chapter, is something that perhaps attempts to do both? Yeah. It almost gets back to NASA's creation, which is in 1957, Sputnik gets launched. Americans across the nation are freaking out, to put it mildly, that America has fallen behind technologically and with respect to science. Um, so they, they, they act to create NASA. They have Lyndon Johnson um, has congressional hearings to investigate why we've fallen behind. They finally promote the creation of NASA. And Eisenhower pushes for it to be a civilian agency. And this is an early hint at his fear of the military-industrial complex, which he talks about later. But it was actually a really incredible moment because the Russian space program was obviously not civilian and, and shrouded in secrecy. But by creating a civilian agency, Eisenhower was pushing the ability of the program to react to the public, pushing the fact that the program would have to react to the public because its purse strings were controlled by Congress. So that's what happens in the 1960s as we're racing to the moon and the goal is to beat the Russians. The purse strings are let loose, money is flowing into NASA and all these criticisms from these grassroots movements, whether they're feminists or environmentalists or civil rights activists or anti-war activists, can be ignored. NASA does not have to deal with them in the 60s. Um, but once it's known that we are going to beat the Russians to the moon, which actually occurred with Apollo 8, where we circled the moon, uh, we orbited the moon. Once the, the world knew we were going to beat the Russians, the, the popular support for NASA plummeted. And it's at that moment that NASA has to figure out a way to maintain or rebuild that public support. And what it does in the 70s is it begins to react to this grassroots criticism by spinning off that technology to low-income housing projects, by accepting women into the astronaut corps, by using some of their satellites to assess environmental problems back on Earth like Landsat, by, by halting military technology during the Vietnam War and using that technology for something else. So the, 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 the moment of it becoming a civilian agency actually allows the public to have a, a control or a say over, over its history and its technology, I think. And I think there's a problem now with this, this move towards uh, a neoliberal, market-oriented, um, private space exploration, because it might incur, it might you know, spark competition, um, which is great, um, but you're basically taking space exploration out of the public sphere. Um, and what that means is that we're going to have less control over it, um, I think that it means that scientists are going to be less involved in it, and we're going to have basically tour buses that take wealthy people up into space. And I think that what's going to you know what's going to happen to all that science that, that's been generated from from NASA? I think it's dangerous. You mentioned the way that you first conceived of this project and what it became, and you were thinking about looking at spaceships designed by ecologists. The fact that you actually do bring the ecologists into the picture. In the chapter on civil rights, it brings this, uh, to me, unexpected nexus between yeah. between uh, space technology, ecology, and... Urban inequality. And, yeah, basically. urban inequality, <laughs> yeah, yeah and, and environmental inequality. That was completely unexpected and yeah. something that, when I first started reading the section about the ecologist, I thought, where, where is he going with this? Right. And then suddenly you see there's this attempt to actually port this over to HUD right. and to actually use NASA cabin ecology spinoffs to improve housing in the society. Right. Yeah. 
Right. It blew my mind. How did you even find this? It, it, you know, you, you had clearly been thinking about it before. When I went back and started looking at some of the civil rights material, they kept criticizing it for a host of issues, the Apollo program, but, but a lot of their critiques centered on housing. And they kept saying, why are we spending so much to house astronauts in space when we can't even house our poor in America's cities? Um, and then I came across all this material from HUD with George Romney, the head of HUD, who was teaming up with a man named Harold Finger, who was a NASA administrator, and they were working together to take this space technology and 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 put it into working order in what they called Operation Breakthrough, which was this amazing HUD um, program to try to figure out how they could build prefabricated low-income housing in a way that would cut costs and, and be more energy efficient for the people living in these buildings. Now, it turned out to be unsuccessful, um, but you know, when you when you when you go down that research wormhole, all of a sudden, sometimes you find yourself in places that that seem to connect these disparate things, whether it's urban housing conditions and space capsules, you know, orbiting the moon, and all of a sudden you're like, wow, this is really cool. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, you, you even mentioned this, that NASA had an urban systems project office. Yeah. yeah. Was that specifically something that you know was was a was I mean, I, a response or? Yeah, I think I think it was definitely a response because they they do it in in the early seventies, right when congressional money for NASA is dwindling and also uh, public support is dwindling, uh, and they realize that they have to be relevant back on Earth and and also at this point there was a huge urban crisis going on right we had riots all over the country so they thought if we can prove ourselves valuable for helping trying to solve this urban environmental crisis then the popular support might come back so they did things like they um, took satellites and they assessed a snow melt runoff to know, to understand whether cities would have enough water um, they created air pollution detectors that they put in inner cities to try to assess the air quality um, they had water treatment systems based on uh, recycling water in space capsules that they put into effect in um, apartment buildings and um, certain communities. Um, and then, of course, they had this heating and cooling system that they were trying to implement through HUD. And again, it doesn't work so well in that chapter. In, in the civil rights chapter, a lot of this spin-off technology does not really help African Americans. So it was more performative than material. But in other chapters, like the environmentalism chapter, their science proves incredibly beneficial for scientists. I feel like the, uh, the main takeaway there is you know, the NASA spinoffs actually, it's not just tang and braces. Yeah. One thing you mentioned earlier was that the book was organized um, thematically, it's or yeah, and you're right, it's organized by, by social movement. You know, since it's not a strict chronology, there is the danger of repeating yourself in a book that is organized thematically. You know, if the same sort of thing happens with each social movement, then you're sort of retelling your story five times. But what I found was that each social movement, each political movement, had a slightly different relationship with NASA, and NASA's response to them was slightly different. So there's no one takeaway. In other words, NASA isn't always just um, performing its aid to these political movements. Sometimes it proves very, very helpful to these movements with respect to environmentalism. It gives environmental scientists data to assess global ecological changes, and it gives environmentalists iconic images with which to promote their movement as well. So in that case, in the environmental chapter, NASA's impact is, is very important and, and palpable um, and material. That actually makes me think of your second chapter, which is the one that's about the new left in Vietnam. And 
the story of Agent Orange is pretty well known mm-hmm. among environmental historians. This defoliant an attempt to make visible what was invisible, which is the enemy in, in the heavily forested areas of Vietnam. But then you also reveal this attempt to alter the space environment in a way that's similar to Agent Orange. It's mentioned it. Right. Tell, tell us about it. So in the mid-60s, the military approaches NASA and says, look, can you help us in Vietnam? And NASA says, absolutely. And they begin to develop several technologies, one of which is called Project ABLE. And it's a it was a 2,000-foot-in-diameter mylar mirror that they were going to deploy into geosynchronous orbit, which means it would float above Vietnam, basically. So um, as the Earth turns, the satellite would be moving at the same speed, so it would appear on the ground as if it was hovering above, even though both the Earth is spinning and the satellite is moving. And the idea was that um, at nighttime, when it was nighttime in Vietnam, this giant mirror hovering, you know, thousands of miles above could deflect light from the day side of the earth, from the bright side of the earth. It could reflect sunlight and shine that sunlight down into the jungles of Vietnam and illuminate the jungle at an intensity of 1.7 times a full moon. And the idea here was that that would allow the American military people on the ground, soldiers, to see communists more easily, to make the the jungle more legible. Um, And this is really just one example of of NASA's responsibility or task during the early years of the Vietnam War to try to help the military see better in Vietnam, that much of this is about legibility. There's another project called the Electronic Battlefield, where they take seismometers that were used on the moon during the Apollo missions, and they retool them, and they make them into these highly sensitive seismometers that they drop, 20,000 of them along the Ho Chi Minh Trail. And as guerrillas and communists passed along the trail, it would record hits, and those hits would then be sent up to airplanes remotely who were circling 24 hours a day overhead. The planes would then relay the coordinates to a IBM computer based in Thailand, which was the same IBM computer that was in Houston that was dealing, you know, organizing the the, the Apollo um, moon mission. And then those coordinates would be computed into a location along the Ho Chi Minh Trail, and they would then go to the nearest air base. And the electronic battlefield was actually developed and went into effect. The Project ABLE was scrapped, partly because of protests by students for a democratic society and other new leftists. But the electronic battlefield went into effect and was functioning for several years until anti-war protests um, got too intense. They singled out NASA and its role in the electronic battlefield. Um, William Proxmire, senator from Wisconsin, actually, um, exposed the electronic battlefield and NASA's role within it. It forced, you know, that forced NASA to rethink its role in Vietnam. Um, it scraps a lot, all of these projects, and it begins to think of new ways to engage developing countries. And it uses Landsat pretty much to do that. I want to talk more about Landsat, but before we do that, this this argument that college students protesting were able to cause a major policy change at NASA regarding military efforts in in Southeast Asia. How were you able to get at that causal link? Sure. That's a really good question. And my answer is not going to be satisfactory, uh, but it will be honest. The key here is it's very difficult to determine whether it was anti-war protests in general that pressured NASA to alter its technology involving the Vietnam War, or if it was specific protests by new leftists against NASA. 
So in other words, there were new leftists on campuses all over the country who were protesting against NASA, but there were many, many more protests nationwide, both on campuses and off, against the war. Um, uh, so in the book, I'm, I'm pretty open and honest that I'm not trying to say that it was just the new leftist protest against NASA that pressured NASA to alter its technology and stop deploying it you know, to aid the military. But it was a combination of that and the, the anti-war protests in general that really created a cultural moment when involving itself in the Vietnam War became a liability. And NASA's internal policies suggest that, they, that NASA administrators were very aware of this. NASA goes from allowing its engineers and administrators to talk very publicly about the technology they're developing for the Vietnam War to saying that they are no longer able to do that. They can say that they're supporting the war, but they cannot go into the details of that technology. So it suggested to me that NASA was rethinking how public it wanted to be about its role in the war. So th there's no smoking gun here that says it was a definitely new leftist protesting specifically against NASA that forced NASA's hand. It's more the, the context of the anti-Vietnam protest in general. So moving back to Landsat, mm -hmm. this chapter is, a, this is such an interesting way of looking at Cold War spheres of influence, the use of a very specific kind of space technology, one that is intended to generate more knowledge about the planet, but not necessarily knowing the enemy through knowing the planet, instead being able to gain allies through telling them more right. about, telling said right. allies more about, uh, about their, um, natural about, resources. About their natural resources, right. So, you know, once, once um, NASA realizes that its military technology is, is sort of becoming unpopular, it realizes that it still needs to find a way to, to basically engage developing countries, especially in an era of detente, because this is a period in the 1970s when detente has become a practice, a policy of the federal government, um, and NASA realizes how can they continue to be relevant in that new era. And what they decide is that they can use Landsat, which is a technology, it's a satellite that reads, it uses multispectral scanners to read the electromagnetic radiation bouncing off objects on the Earth's surface. What it really does in layman's terms is it, it measures slight temperature variations that are bouncing off objects on Earth. So it can read different crops, it can read minerals under, right underneath the ground, it can even read fish and animal movements and migration. So an incredibly useful resource. So it realizes that instead of using technology to bomb Vietnam, they could use Landsat to encourage developing countries to work with the United States instead. So NASA goes out of its way to try to get foreign scientists and foreign politicians to team up with NASA to receive Landsat data about their country's natural resources. So NASA holds symposiums and conferences in Africa, in Latin America, and in Asia to try to train these people and give them the knowledge they might need to use this data. And it proves enormously successful. Um, within a couple years, over 50 nations are using Landsat data to assess their own natural resources. They're building ground receiving stations. But in the beginning, there was a lot of opposition. These developing countries were worried that Landsat was going to be used to allow the U.S. to sort of control these natural resources in sort of nefarious ways. And you mentioned, you, you talk at length in the book about a Soviet version. Um, the Soviets had a, a very similar technology. What they did, along with deploying their, their, their data as well, was they also took cosmonauts from these developing countries up um, to their Salyut space station. 
Um, so I opened the chapter on Vietnam with one of these missions where they take a, a, a Vietnamese com, com, cosmonaut, Pham Tuan, and they bring him up there in space. It's during the, the Olympic Games in 1980, so it's very you know, worldwide press about it. And they then announce that they're going to use this MK6 camera to assess Vietnam's natural resources, but also to assess the ecological damage done by the defoliants used by the United States military during the Vietnam War. So an incredible publicity moment where they're using their version of Landsat, again in an era of detente, for peaceful purposes, but in a, in a, very, in a way that has heavy propaganda uh, implications. This is also right in the period that they're looking at late 70s, early 80s. This makes me think about the, the UN Conference on the Human Environment in Stockholm mm-hmm. in 1972, right. and the New Economic Order, and the, the, the organizing principle of providing egalitarian access to resources by both developed and developing nations mm-hmm. during that time. And it seems like this is a high-tech implementation of that that's really fascinating because the United States and the Soviet Union are the two main users of outer space, the countries that have access, and yet this isn't necessarily about resource use, but resource knowledge. Mm-hmm. Right, in some ways. So it's, it's, it's both serving that idea that's popular at the UN during this time, and at the same time, doing something entirely different. It's almost like, look at your resources, we're identifying them, we're giving you this ability to, to know what you have, yeah. but not have the proprietary access right. to that knowledge yourself. Well, that's exactly the point, is that it, it is this moment where the United States is trying to promote this free use of knowledge, but we have to remember that the, the United States government and NASA determines where the satellites flew, determines when to turn on and off the Landsat satellite, determines who gets the data. You know, in other words, you know, they're not going to allow China to get this data, or the Soviet Union, or Mongolia, other communist nation, or Cuba, right? So it is almost this notion of, of uh, a hegemony that is, in a sense, co-produced, right? I mean, you have, um, and in some ways, therefore, more difficult to resist, because you have the United States encouraging these developing countries to work with it, and then in doing so, it, it makes it that much more difficult to sort of buck that system. This was not an altruistic donation of data to the world. It was that you'll get the data if you work with us and don't work with the Soviets. You know, that's really what's going on there. And this is really the inherent tension with the U.S. space program, is that if you even think about the debate over the flag that they were going to put on the moon, Okay, this illustrates this tension between sort of national interests versus sort of a, a, a global community, right? Um, the, the debate over the putting a flag on the moon entailed many people who were arguing that the United States is going to get there first, they should be able to put their flag on the moon. And then you had a lot of NASA administrators and scientists who were saying, well, you know, the originating legislation for NASA really is about the peaceful use of, of space for all mankind, so perhaps we should put a UN flag on the moon. The UN flag has the earth surrounded by olive branches, right? And there was an outrage by Americans during this period. No, 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 we have to have the American flag. So there's that tension between, is this space exploration about peaceful use for all mankind? Well, yes, but we also want mankind to know who got there first. That brings up, I think it was a really interesting paradox in this particular chapter. of You refer to it as a mixed blessing. You go into detail about how many of the scientists in these nations weren't equipped to necessarily work with that data. To me, it peeled back the veneer of, of altruism yeah. and instead revealed it for what it was, which was an Absolutely. attempt to build spheres of influence. Yes, and that's what I argue. I, 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 you know, I really try to, as you said, peel back that veil and, and say this was not about altruism. It was about a different way of using technology 
to fight the Vietnam War yeah. in, a, in a more in a metaphorical way. I mean, in, in some ways, it was easier for Vietnamese communists to resist NASA's military technology during the 1960s than it was for the politicians and scientists of Brazil to resist Landsat. And, and Brazil really became the poster child for Landsat technology. The, the country used it to track its natural resources, to track deforestation in the Amazon rainforest, to track its fisheries, and also even to redraw the actual political map of the country. When you're using it to that extent, it makes it very difficult to resist. So it's, it, it's, this hegemony is being co-produced, you know, which makes it more complicated. <laughs> In chapter three, when you, you start with Stuart Brand, mm-hmm. I think when most people think about environmentalism and outer space, the idea of the whole earth, which is something that Stuart Brand runs the whole earth catalog starting 1968. You have the first Earth Day flag years later that is a, an image of the whole earth. The idea of the planet as a, as, a, as, a, as a single unit. I don't think it's too much of a leap to say that most people, if you were going to think about the connections between NASA and environmentalism, that's the first thing you think of. But in this chapter, you go a little bit more into the politics of that, that moment. You even refer to it, I believe, as, as a courtship, which I think is kind of interesting. Could you tell us a little bit more about that courtship, what perhaps a reader might expect to sure. get that to new about the yeah. story from this particular yeah. chapter? Um, so the, the narrative of the whole Earth image as an environmental icon you know, often begins with Stuart Brand on his rooftop in San Francisco in 1966. He takes 100 micrograms of LSD. He's tripping, and he claims to be able to see the curvature of the Earth from his rooftop. He's looking over the San Francisco skyline, and he says that for the first time he realized that the world was finite. It wasn't infinite. And he thinks to himself, if we can get this image to people, they'll begin to be better stewards of planet Earth. So he says, how can I do that? And he's still up there tripping, and he he finally realizes that if we had a picture of the Earth from space, that might do the trick. So he comes down the next day, he prints up several hundred buttons with the very simple question, why haven't we seen a photograph of the whole Earth yet? He sells them at Berkeley and gets almost gets arrested, which sparks coverage by the San Francisco Chronicle. He then sells them at Stanford and MIT and Harvard. So Stuart Brand claims that these buttons on lapel pins convinced NASA administrators to change the trajectory of Apollo 17, which they did consciously to capture that whole Earth image from space. And environmentalists and environmental historians since then have claimed that that image immediately becomes an environmental icon, helps to spark the environmental movement. Um, But what I found is when I looked for that image through numerous photograph archives of the original Earth Day in 1970 and the Earth Day in 1980, the image just wasn't there. They're not promoting Earth Day through images of Earth from space. Um, they're doing it through images of pollution in 1970. In 1980, it has to do with um, nuclear waste and also with pollution. So I said, how did these images become green? How did they become iconic? What I found was that the whole Earth image just wasn't on the Earth Day publicity material. And when I went back to look at how these images became iconic, and what I do in the chapter is I make the argument that it was NASA data and computer models that allowed scientists to take global ecological data and to depict it visually on images that resembled the whole Earth image. And it was when that occurred in the public imagination, in the public sphere, that's when the image of whole Earth, these images of Earth from space, began to become environmental icons began to to be culturally green. So it's a lot more complicated than that, but the chapter lays this out in more detail. 
especially with respect to the ozone crisis and climate change later on. But I argue that it's, it's, it's scientific data that made those cultural images iconic. So we have science and culture coming together in ways here that I think created whole earth as we know it today. Let's move on to the ladies. Yep. Again, I think this is another point in this book where you, where you can see the bones of the previous idea for the book coming out. Mm-hmm. But looking at the intersections between the feminist movement of the 60s and 70s and 80s and the space program, we're seeing not only gender politics in the space program, but we're also seeing how space as an environment itself shapes certain policies mm-hmm. and practices in the space program at the time. So could you talk a little bit about how you got to thinking about specifically women's yeah. bodies in the space environment sure. and how that informed yep. the, the writing of this chapter? Yeah. So the chapter on second wave feminism really began with the idea of bodies and nature because of Richard White's essay. And I thought, oh, I can investigate mostly male bodies going into space and how um, we had to protect them with spacesuits, and that was sort of like taking a small Earth environment within the spacesuit into space. Um, and then also I realized that we were creating these environmental simulators back on Earth that were basically recreating a space environment back on Earth to test these bodies and, in a sense, allow them to gain knowledge about moving across different space environments, whether it was a, a mock-up of the lunar surface or an anti-gravity simulator in a, a water immersion tank, basically a big pool. But what I realized was that this was also a way I could connect it to second wave feminism. And the easy part for me in this chapter was to illustrate how women were excluded from what was then called manned spaceflight. And what NASA does is it basically promotes astronauts as a very, very manly thing. And then it begins to fall back on the argument that to to, to test women's bodies, we have to change the simulators and that would cost a lot of money and we'd have to redesign the spacesuits and that would put us further behind the Russians. If we're going to make it to the moon, we have to exclude women and focus on men. Now, they had a number of rules that excluded women. They had to be jet pilots. No women could get the number of hours to be an astronaut, even though they planned on flying the spaceships remotely. That The pilots didn't really do anything that was reminiscent of flying a plane. So the easy part was to show why women were excluded. NASA relied on women's bodies to exclude them from the astronaut corps. Women's bodies were too frail. They weren't strong enough. The menstrual cycle would make them unfit for space. And there's a good story. There's great work on this by Margaret Weidekamp on an early women in space program that actually tested 13 women, put them through the same tests that they put through the Mercury astronauts, and actually women came out in some ways much better and much more adapted to spaceflight than men because they were lighter and they used less energy, less food and oxygen, so they would allow the space capsule to be lighter and therefore cheaper to fly. Um, so there were reasons to, that women would be better than men, but of course NASA didn't allow that. You know, that was the easy part to figure out um, how NASA was restricting women um, in its all-male astronaut corps. What was harder was to figure out how that relationship between NASA and second-wave feminism changed second-wave feminism. That was the hard part here. Um, It's not just a one-way relationship. NASA's being changed, um, and and so is the the women's movement. What happens is that basically now and other women's groups begin to protest the all-male astronaut corps. Um, They do this through demonstrations. They pick it outside NASA headquarters. They sneak into the Johnson Space Center and hold mock beauty pageants where they put up astronauts as the contestants. They have mail-in lobbying campaigns to Congress. And that ultimately forces NASA to, to admit women to the astronaut corps, beginning with Sally Ride, as we know. 
But how did that debate over women astronauts shape second wave feminism? And that was the hardest part of this chapter to write. And what I realized was that this debate over women astronauts actually sparked a debate within second wave feminism about this notion of equality versus difference. So 20 years before Sally Ride, a Russian cosmonaut, Valentina Tereshkova, went up in space. She was the first woman in space. When she came down, the Russians celebrated her as a symbol of the equality of the sexes under communism. So this was an, a, an example of them promoting women as equal to men. Well, in, the, in second wave feminism in the United States, people started saying, well, women might be equal to men, but women are also different than men. And, that, and there's a difference. That difference really matters. We cannot, as feminists, erase the biological differences between men and women. We should instead argue for equality through difference, right? And I show in the chapter how this debate over female astronauts fed into and, and nourished this debate within second wave feminism between equality feminists and difference feminists. And in the end, you have people like Gloria Steinem who are at the, the launch of Sally Ride who are cheering her on, and also people like Betty Friedan who are commenting on this as well. And they both have sort of different takes on this equality versus difference moment. That's a great way of showing equality versus difference feminism in a place where you wouldn't expect it. Right. Right. And it's something that in my research I've seen is remarkably consistent over a very long period of time. Right. And, and women's bodies in particular, the ability to procreate, yeah, exactly. to, to, reproduce, to reproduce, yeah. ends up being part of the rejection Absolutely. of women and the portrayal of women as quite literally waste in yeah. space. That The idea of training women who would then just leave in order to... Mm -hmm. make babies would be would be a waste of resources. Except when it came to colonization, then you'd need them for space babies, right? right. That was the other argument. Yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah. What I found so interesting was that it was always it always came back to their bodies. It always came back to sort of their bodies and bodily health and 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 the ability of their bodies to physically journey into space. So for me, that's where the nature, that's where the environmental history in this chapter comes in, is around the body and these simulated environments both the spacesuit environment, which is simulated Earth, and the terrestrial simulations that were basically space environments back down on Earth, and how these bodies moved across them. But the body is the key here. So let me ask you one last question about this chapter before we move on, which is, why would an environmental historian care about this chapter? For a couple of reasons. Um, first of all, I think it builds on Richard White's essay, which, uh, you know, knowing nature... Uh, through labor, or central role of bodies, um, so it builds on that. But I think it also has more obvious links to environmental history, and it has to do with these simulators and these spacesuits, this notion of artificial environments. There's a long history of that. The military created artificial environments to help train soldiers. Submarines and aquatic exploration has this history of creating artificial environments. And again, to help bodies learn how to maneuver through them. So I think there's some pretty obvious things for environmental historians, but I think what the chapter does is it pushes environmental historians to try to think about how those obvious links to our field might have broader political connections, in this case, to second wave feminism. So now... Um, hippies. Yeah, let's move on to the hippies. And you mentioned that this is the chapter that seems to have gotten the most traction for you, mm -hmm. and that it's surprising because even though it's supposedly about hippies and counterculture, it's actually about the right. Yeah. I think part of the reason for that is that there is somewhat dramatic tension in the chapter between, on the one hand, these hippies who are quite opposed to NASA as part of the establishment, 
And then you have these conservatives who are incredibly supportive of NASA as a symbol of free market enterprise, NASA's contractors all over the country, and sort of the development of the space technology in, in this very open free market society. So there's this tension, and I open the chapter with that tension. I have a hippie journalist who attends an Apollo launch named James Cunin. He was sort of a, he was really a new leftist, but he was tagged as a hippie um, at the launch. And he bumps into William F. Buckley Jr., who's also covering the Apollo, I think it's the Apollo 8 launch. And they, I, I sort of read their reactions to the launch alongside each other, and it's just completely different. Cunin is mentioning all the nature at the Cape, and he ignores the, the technology and thinks it's all a big performance, as we return to that phrase. And William Buckley thinks that the rocket is one of the most beautiful things man has ever created. And that sort of plays out in the chapter. The hippies really oppose NASA for ignoring problems back on Earth, whereas the conservatives really embrace NASA for a variety of reasons. But in the end, the chapter takes a twist, I think, that we don't really see coming. So what happens in the chapter is that the hippies criticize NASA for its space exploration and instead promote what they see as inner space exploration. They want to drop out and they want to explore their own inner space, whereas they feel that NASA exploring outer space is sort of a waste. NASA hears their criticism and basically says, we're not going to deal with you, we're going to go with our conservative supporters. People like Ann Rand, William F. Buckley, Barry Goldwater, who are praising NASA for its free market and open economic efficiency. That's really surprising. Why? Because it's this huge federal well, funded. Well, yes, you're totally yeah. right. But, but <laughs> Ann Rand, you know, she has this great essay called Apollo and Dionysus, where she says that the summer of 69, we had Apollo, rational, the god of light, Apollo, versus Dionysus, the god of wine. And that's the hippies up at Woodstock frolicking in the mud. And she goes on and on about how, even though it's a large federal organization, it is free market. It's, it's thousands and thousands of contractors that are competing to make the products that go into this technology. Um, so the, the conservatives flock to it. And NASA responds by really siding with the conservatives and tries to promote some, spin off some of its technology to help, I wouldn't say they're conservatives, but more mainstream America. NASA has this entire solar energy program where it tries to create solar panels that can be used in homes, but the homes they implement it in are suburban homes. So instead of trying to help those inner city African Americans, they create these solar panels and solar panel technology to put on suburban homes. And it fails because at that point, the, uh, the OPEC embargo collapses and oil prices drop. So the, the solar panel program sort of disintegrates. But what happens is instead is that this is where the chapter takes a sort of strange turn, is that what I found was that all around NASA's centers, the centers that Anne Rand is praising for fostering this open democratic system, you see suburbs popping up. Not solar suburbs like NASA wants, but just everyday suburbs. So at the Johnson Space Center, this area called Clear Lake grows by 600% in population over the five years when the Johnson Space Center is created. Down at the Cape, you have similar suburban sprawl. Huntsville in Alabama, similar suburban sprawl. And then there's similar sprawl around the NASA contractors, the private contractors, especially in Southern California, where a lot of this technological development is going on for the, the space program. And I look at those communities in the, in the chapter and I find that they're filled with conservative people who are both drawn to the space project. Um, not, they're not really as concerned about the fuzzy barrier between military work and work for NASA, right? So they're sort of okay with that. Um, and then also I make the argument that within these communities, there's this encouragement of a conservative politics. I build here on 
Matthew Lassiter's work and Lisa McGurr's work um, about sort of the Sun Belt South and Southern California. And I, I sort of make the argument that the built environment of these aerospace suburbs really do foster um, a conservative politics that lay the groundwork for the Reagan revolution in the 80s. It's also interesting because this, when you talk about the growth of these suburbs and the actual transformation of the environments around yeah. the different contractors that are building pieces of this, of this, of this giant right. space program and space infrastructure, you're also, it kind of reminds me of the preceding chapter about changes in, in, in Cape Canaveral, yeah. right? Yeah. About how, yeah. how, how, the, how the space industry changes the, the ecosystems yeah. on the ground. I should say that you know, part of that chapter I just mentioned is not just about the conservative politics of these suburban communities, it's also about the environmental degradation that is, in, that, that, that is caused by the development of these suburban communities. And here I build on Adam Rome's work, right? Um, so there's an environmental component to it, but also a political component. And, um, you know, to counteract some of this negative publicity, NASA, as you said, um, in the environmentalism chapter, really goes to great lengths to, in a sense, act locally, uh, to actually create uh, pr you know, preserved land around the Cape Canaveral launch site. They create the Merritt Island Wildlife Refuge and also the Cape Canaveral National Seashore. And then administrators and personnel at NASA become intimately involved in promoting the ecological stewardship of both of these places. They help to tag and release endangered species. They help to rebuild dunes that have been eroded. Um, they help to um, reintroduce certain species. So NASA is promoting itself as an environmental sort of steward at the Cape, and they publicize this quite forcefully. And how do the, the conservative supporters of NASA respond to that at this time? In my book, those are in two different chapters. But, do, but yeah. I guess yeah. I'm trying, trying yeah. to draw that, right? I'm, I'm seeing a connection there that I'm wondering, because yeah. I just, I can't imagine Ayn Rand thinking that that was... Well, I, I think I do have a little bit of an answer for okay. you. So in, in Buckley and Rand's writing about the Apollo launches that they went to, how they describe the relationship between the natural environment of the Cape and the, the space technology that they see at the Cape, the rockets, the big buildings, is that they see it, especially Ayn Rand, as a symbol of man's ability to control wild nature. So they say they see the Cape Canaveral jungle as this wild, uncontrollable force, and then they see the rocket and the vehicle assembly building and the complex where they launch the rocket at. They see that as sort of a, a civilizing visual element to this landscape. So they see it as very much a hierarchical relationship of technology over nature. So I don't think they would really respond very well to the Merritt Island Wildlife Refuge or the, the Cape Canaveral National Seashore on its own, but with the, the rocket next door, that might be okay for them. It was used as a buffer zone to keep people out, so now they could use it for promotional purposes. The hippies, however, saw the technology of NASA as a dominating negative influence on the, the surrounding environment. They were worried about the exhaust from the, the rockets you know, fouling the air and water of Cape Canaveral. And so what do you consider to be the, the main takeaway of this book? And maybe you could even tell us a little bit about what you think in some next directions sure. that other scholars might take upon reading your book or what you think you might want to do next mm -hmm. after completing this project. Right. I, mean, I think the takeaways are maybe twofold. First is that the grassroots movements of the 1960s, I argue, successfully put pressure on NASA to turn it to turn its technology back around towards Earth. NASA was always looking at Earth as well, but its primary purpose was to explore space, and I think the 60s really forced NASA to, to reorient some of that technology back. 
Conversely, how did NASA affect these movements? I, I make the argument that NASA and these movements and the debate about NASA by these movements helped to foster the identity politics of the 60s and 70s and that there was this fracturing during the 1970s, people beca- becoming more concerned with their narrower political identity than the, the national identity. And it's interesting that this occurs right when we get that image of the whole Earth. So we have people who are embracing that whole Earth image as a moment of global unity and perhaps civil rights activists, feminists saying, wait, that global vision is erasing some of these differences that are quite important here. What would you think would be a great next step after this? Studying space junk and uh, studying light. Two two (laughs) great historians, you know, you and Sarah Pritchard, um, I think are doing exactly what I've tried to do, which is you're trying to show how, in your case, the issue of, of space junk and space trash has many more cultural implications, both material and, and immaterial, on people back on Earth. And I think that what Sarah Pritchard's trying to do with light is very similar. She's arguing it's not just about space and technology, it's also about people and culture and cities and politics. And in other words, this new generation of space historians, as well as environmental historians, are embedding both the nature and the technology within, whether it's a political context or a cultural context, but they're embedding it in broader contexts. And I think that that's what I hope people take away. Let's push our history to touch on these bigger issues. That was Lisa Ruth Rand, Andrew W. Mellon Postdoctoral Fellow at the University of Wisconsin-Madison talking with Neil Marr, Associate Professor of History in the Federated History Department at the New Jersey Institute of Technology and Rutgers University, Newark. Learn more about his work at neilmaher.com. That's N-E-I-L-M-A-H-E-R.com. You've been listening to Edge Effects, a production of CHE, the Center for Culture, History, and Environment in the Nelson Institute for Environmental Studies at the University of Wisconsin-Madison. Today's episode was produced by Lisa Ruth Rand, Brian Hamilton, and me, Sarah Thomas. The music you're listening to is by Julian Lynch. Get all of our episodes sent straight to your computer or mobile device by subscribing to the EdgeFX podcast in the iTunes store. You can also find us on Google Play, Stitcher, and TuneIn. If you like the show, please leave us a rating and a review. And, as always, keep up with the steady flow of great content about cultural and environmental change across the full sweep of human history at edgefx.net.